Well, good morning, friends. A special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. And first things first, where are the Ferris State University fans in the house? <laughs> friends, that's a national championship. That's amazing. Very well done. Go Bulldogs. Now, University of Michigan fans, where are you at? Yes. Yes. It was looking a little rough last night, but we pulled it out, and we have hope, and Jesus is risen. It'll be okay either way. So... We are right now in the last week of an eight-week series called The Story of Us. As you know, we've taken the eight weeks leading up to Easter and explored what I believe to be the eight most important ideas found in the New Testament of your Bible. And then hundreds of us have been reading the New Testament for ourselves during the series as well. This, follow, this coming week is week eight, um, which means you get to read Revelation, so that's going to be fun. Um, and if you have drifted away from the reading program, I invite you to jump back in, do one week with us again. It's week eight. Uh, instructions are on your bookmark. Incredible, incredible opportunity as we land this thing together. And as we land, I just wanted to um, maybe invite a few of you to consider taking a next step in your faith. Um, I am aware that as you read the New Testament, and as we explore the key ideas therein, a few of you have maybe crossed the line of faith for the first time. Maybe you've been in church for a long time, but a light bulb went on and you're like, I, I, I see something about Jesus, about grace that I never understood before. I mean, I, I want to I want to sort of publicly respond. And if that's you, I would love to invite you to visit our Work for Change table out in the gathering space, pick up one of these cards, and there's an opportunity here to ask for someone from the church staff to meet with you and have a conversation about baptism. Uh, baptism is a, a ritual that for thousands of years followers of Jesus have done. When they cross the line of faith, they stand before a community of people and they say, I, I want to follow Jesus with my life. And you get dunked underwater, which sounds terrifying publicly, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. This summer, we're going to be in a tent out in the parking lot. And what an awesome time to get baptized. So again, you're not signing up to get baptized, only to have a conversation about getting baptized. It'll be one-on-one -on -one with somebody from the church staff. We'll even buy you coffee. So how bad is that, right? Uh, the other thing on this card, there's an opportunity. If you've been reading the New Testament and a question has surfaced. You say, man, I read this and thought, I don't know what to do with that, or I want to know more about that. You as well are welcome to stop by and fill out a card um, and tell us what question you would like answered. Put your email down, and then we'll use these questions to sort of shape some of our future times together. So lots of fun. So now, uh, for this week, week eight of the story of us, I want to begin by telling you about a recent conversation I had with a friend who had served with me in student ministry for five years. So we were sort of in the trenches together. Uh, he started with a group of eighth grade boys. You just pray for him, right? Uh, moved all the way through senior high with them. Uh, he and I have been on mission trips together. Good guy. Um, but recently, uh, upon the death of physicist Stephen Hawking, he posted something that showed up on my Facebook feed. And when you see what he wrote, you're gonna be like, oh, I bet you had lunch with him. Yes, I did. Here's what he wrote. <clears throat> he said, I want the world to know that I am a secular humanist, to which a whole bunch of us would go, huh? He says, I do not believe in a God or any sort of afterlife. I believe that when we die, we die. I find this belief system extremely freeing. I'm proud of who I am and what I believe. It took me almost 30 years to figure this out and a few more to be fully open about what I don't believe. This is who I am. So of course I prayed for him. <laughs> No, actually, I messaged him. And I said, dude, I would love to have lunch with you. And I said, not to debate you, but I'm not sure you've made the decision with all the information in front of you. Uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with secular humanism, I pulled a definition from our friends at Wikipedia. Uh, here's what Wikipedia will tell you. 
Uh, Secular humanism is a philosophy or life stance that embraces human reason, ethics, social justice, and philosophical naturalism while specifically rejecting religious dogma, supernaturalism, pseudoscience, and superstition as the basis of morality and decision-making. In other words, you don't need a God to behave well. Secular humanism posits that human beings are capable of being ethical and moral without a religion or a God. And so I messaged my friend, um, and I said I wanted to listen and I wanted to challenge. I wasn't sure specifically why he left his faith behind, but I was sure that secular humanism is not a historically honest way to see the world. And so we met, and I shared with him a bit of what I want to share with you this morning, which gets after the message of the New Testament about what the church is supposed to be and what followers of Jesus are supposed to be in the world. And it just begins with this observation. While humans have generally shown compassion to close relatives and friends, true altruism, meaning care and concern for others, isn't really all that natural for human beings. And you can see this everywhere when you look at the history. Moreover, the worldview of 21st century Americans has been profoundly influenced by the teachings of Jesus Christ, whether we're aware of it or not. And in fact, many in our culture no longer see the impact, but what's fascinating is those on the outside looking in do. A few years ago, I happened upon a book by an author named David Aikman. The book is called Jesus in Beijing. And David Aikman was the Time Magazine correspondent in the late 80s and early 90s in Beijing, China. And while he was there, he was sort of reporting on the shift that was going on in the Chinese government and the shift that was going on in the Chinese culture. And one of the things that he talks about was a lecture he attended given by a scholar from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in which the researcher described China's efforts to discern the secret to America's success. They were at a spot as a country, especially in the 1980s and 90s, where they were sort of rethinking their approach to their society, and they were trying to figure out what it was that made America so great. Here's what the researcher said. He said, at first, this Chinese researcher said, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we did. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system, snicker, snicker, right? Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we've realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West has been so powerful. He said the Christian moral foundation of societal and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and the successful transition to democratic policies. We don't have any doubt about this. The researcher also noted that they'd been paying attention, and when Christianity is brought to rural China, life gets better for the people in rural China. Drug use goes down, crime goes down, and families that embrace a life of faith actually grow more wealthy than their irreligious counterparts. In other words, Christianity matters, and Christianity makes a difference, a real difference, right here and right now. And here's why. Capitalism with a conscience is not natural. Capitalism with a conscience is not natural. Human history illustrates that valuing those beneath you on the social ladder isn't natural, and taking care of people who can't do anything for you in return isn't natural either, all of which raises a really fascinating question. What exactly does come natural to human beings, historically speaking? What what is it that we do Naturally, as it turns out, when humans follow their instincts, we tend to behave a lot like 
animals. I know we're flattered, right? We look out for ourselves, and the rule of the day is the survival of the fittest. It reminds me of a trip my wife and I took about 10 years ago to Africa. We were visiting a missionary, and as part of the trip, we got to go on a safari because, as the guy we were visiting said, when are you going to be in Nairobi again? To which I responded, I probably never. So we got on this little plane, and we left from the Nairobi airport, and we flew out to a place called Masai Mara, which you may remember uh, from The Lion King, the opening sequence, right? That's, that's kind of there. We land on this grass runway, and we're greeted by not a control tower, but a guy with a spear and a loincloth. I was like, wow, we are not in Kansas anymore, right? Uh, then they pack all of our bags into a pop-top minivan. Apparently, the Land Rovers were for the rich people. I don't know. Uh, and they drive us to a tent hotel. In other words, it's a hotel made of tents. It has a generator, uh, and it's fairly you know, rustic, you might say. We spent the night, and then in the morning, before the sunrise, we got back in our pop-top minivan, and we went out on the savanna because the animals are active as the sun is rising. Well, during our trip, the guide is trying to tell us what to look for, what to watch for, and all of a sudden, our van kind of comes to a crawl because out the left window, we see a lion. And the lion, not that lion, that would be really crazy, right? A smaller, less intimidating lion, but a lion nonetheless. And he says, you know, look at this. This is so rare to have one this close to the car. And this lion was, was sleeping, or so we thought. Well, in short order, a few antelope began to jump in front of the road, blocking our way, and we notice that the lion begins to open one eye. And our guide, a very excitable African fellow, says, ooh, there's going to be a rumble, right? <laughs> and so we all pull out our cameras because we're thinking, this is going to get crazy, and the lion begins creeping along the side of the minivan like a ninja, right? And these antelope, which are very skittish animals, are unaware. And all of a sudden, the lioness lunges. The antelopes take off and bound out of sight, being trailed by a lion. Friends, it was not a good day to be an antelope on the savannah, okay? And then I thought about it. It's never a good day to be an antelope on the savannah, right? Because if you're an antelope, you're going to lose the fight every single time because of what comes naturally to things like lions and hippopotamuses, right? Uh, historically, when humans follow what comes naturally, we're not all that different. It's like the biggest and the strongest and the most powerful and the most resourced survive, and those down the food chain suffer. The humans that are in charge come up with things like racism and selfishness and adultery and infanticide and cheating, and lying, and revenge, and slavery. I mean, this, is, this still happens all over our world without the influence of something bigger than ourselves. And we see this because of the sin that has been unleashed on planet Earth and it operates in all of us, and without any intervention, we're just bent towards ourselves. Right? We see it in our marriages, we see it with our children. We see it when we're, when we're dating. We're like, what can you do for me, right? It's all about me. We see it at work. It's like we have that impulse, like, I'll help them because they might be able to help me later. We see it, as, see it in the way we relate to money, how we spend, how we consume, how we hoard. That's why when you think about it, spiritual growth, right, growing in the proper direction can be thought of as a process of overcoming selfishness. In other words, we need outside intervention to move beyond it's all 
about me. And Christianity offers just such an opportunity. Jesus invites us to live beyond what is natural and to find a better life in the process. The New Testament contains a book called Acts that many of you read. It's the actions of the first followers of Jesus. It was written by a, a man named Luke. We believe he was a doctor and a Jesus follower. Luke gives us this account of the Christians in the city of Jerusalem, the same city where Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave. He says this. He says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. He said, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Open hands. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's the temple in Jerusalem. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? I would argue that those on the outside looking in saw that these Christians had tapped into a better way of life. And something deep within them resonated because many of these early Christians were way down on the social totem pole. And they said, okay, in that community, it seems like they respect everybody and it seems like they take care of everybody. And we've never seen anything like that before. The Roman Empire, the culture was survival of the fittest. And if you weren't the fittest, I mean, you, you had no opportunity. And yet, by becoming a Jesus follower, you, you, you not only gained a perspective on eternity because of the blood, but you entered this community that was making a real difference right here and right now as the light of these first followers of Jesus began to shine, people were drawn to the light. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is ask a really important question. I mean, what specifically was the vision for life that these first Christians caught that was so transformative, that drew them out of selfishness and allowed them to open themselves up to giving themselves away? We get a clue in a letter written by a pastor named Paul to early Christians living in the city of Rome. And, and that's a powerful, powerful concept because Rome was the capital of the world in the day, and yet there's this group of Jesus followers running countercultural in the city where the Roman emperor sat on his throne. So in this letter to early Christians, a pastor named Paul, he challenges them because they, like us, are in the midst of a world that is bent towards the self, and he's trying to push them outside of that. Here's what, here's what he says. He says, therefore... I urge you, brothers, and in the original language, it's a gender-inclusive brothers. Uh, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of what he has done for you, by sending Jesus to die on the cross so that you know where you stand with God, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship because of what God has done for you. The only logical response to the, his sacrifice for you is to sacrifice yourself for others. The call of a Christian life is to move from selfishness to sacrifice. As a follower of Jesus, maybe said a different way, it can't be all about me. It has to be about we. I was really excited about that, right? It's, it's like Dr. Seuss invades Keystone. Yeah, it's not just about me. It's gotta be about we, or said more differently or plainly, Jesus invites his followers to move from me to we. And say, okay, that, that's, a, that's a big concept. I mean, but Paul, what does that look like practically? Well, as he continues, he tells us. In the next verse, he says this. He says, do not conform any longer 
to the pattern of this world. In other words, this world has a pattern. It has a groove. It has a cultural current that's going to feel very normal to you because you were born into it and you're surrounded by people that are in it with you. It's the fish that doesn't know he's in water because he's always been in water. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, like, this world has a set of expectations for life that you're going to fall into naturally. The culture's like a river, and if you pick up your feet, it's going to carry you along, and you're going to end up living just like everyone else, but that's not the call of a life that's been rescued by Jesus. Jesus invites us to be transformed in our ways of doing life. We must pay attention to the destructive, selfish patterns that are natural and consciously decide to move in counterintuitive ways. Don't conform any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul goes on. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly than you, of yourselves than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. You say, what do you mean, Paul? I think Paul is saying that transformed living begins in the mind. You have to acknowledge the grace that's given you, and you must remember that you are not the center of the universe. And we, we, we know this, but we forget it because the world around us constantly is saying, you need to focus on yourself. It's all about you. But we're not the center of the universe. God is. We're not on the planet to exert our power at the expense of others. He says, because of the grace given, you need to transform your thinking. You need to remember who you are and whose you are. A few verses later, Paul gets really practical. He presents a list of instructions that have the power to revolutionize a life. And he begins with a concept that shouldn't surprise us at all if you've been with us in this series. He says this in uh, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Love. And there we go again with love. He said, what is the heartbeat of the Jesus movement? What does it mean to follow after Jesus? It's to engage in a life of love. And so Paul says to these first Christians, listen, your love must be sincere. It must be genuine. It must be selfless. It's a love that thinks of others before self. It's, it's not proud, but it seeks to follow the example of Jesus who laid down his life for others. It's pure, it's unpolluted, it's disruptive, it's revolutionary, it's beautiful. It flows out of the heart that understands the mercy shown them by God and then responds. He continues, he says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. It's almost like Paul says to these first Christians, listen, you, you may not know this, but there's a battle going on inside of you. Uh, because when you said yes to Jesus, your identity changed. You're now a child of God. But when you said yes to Jesus, you became, have a new identity, but you have old habits. Old habits that are still from your old life. And he says, you need to hate the evil and you need to cling to the good. Or you're going to fall back into those old, natural, destructive patterns. He continues, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another. And there's 32 times in the New Testament that the phrase one another shows up. Paul tells them to one another, one another. Not just simply think of yourself, but, but live in community, live sacrificially. Move from selfishness to sacrifice. Move from me to we. He said, and I love it. he says brotherly love. It's like, just like you naturally want to care for your biological family, now you need to think of others as family. He goes on, he says, honor one another above yourselves. 
And this is really, this is really interesting. It takes me back to like math class. Remember math class? Some of you are like, oh no, pop quiz, right? No, math class. Uh, remember fractions? There's like a top part and a bottom part, the numerator and the denominator, which are like the worst words ever, really. You know, I had a guy at University of Michigan who was teaching me calculus and um, he had a really thick accent and he called it the numerate and the denumerate. <laughs> and, and then he would look at us and go, it's queer. <laughs> We're like, it's not clear. No, uh, anyway, numerator, denominator. But um, remember, uh, yeah, so Paul argues that spiritual maturity can be thought of as a fraction of the percentage of time you think about others over the fraction of time you think about yourself. And you get a percentage there when you do the division, right? And Paul is saying, increasingly, as you follow Jesus, you need to be thinking of others more than you're thinking of yourself. And you say, well, that's, nobody does that. That's his, that's his point. That's what Jesus calls us to do. How much of your time and energy do you spend on yourself versus time and energy on others? It's like as we come to understand what God has done for us, our perspective begins to shift, and we begin to see the way of Jesus as an others-centered life. I remember uh, back in college, I had a Bible study, a bunch of guys, and we decided one way to embody this would be to sort of go about our day, and whenever we felt like that selfish voice rise in response to someone else, we would literally say to ourselves, you are more important than me. You are more important than me. And it was funny, after a couple of weeks of that, we came back together, and we're like, how many times do you have to say that? And it's like, hundreds, right? I, I was inconvenienced, and I felt that rage rise, I said, no, you're more important than me. You're more important than me. And it's like this pattern. It's a retraining of our heart that begins in the mind with just that decision. You are more important than me. Paul continues. He says, live in harmony or unity or oneness with one another. Live in harmony. Live at peace with one another. At one point, Jesus prays for his followers, and he prays that they would be one. They would have harmony. He says, as God, as I am in you and you are in me, may they be one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Something about the counterintuitive oneness of followers of Jesus is supposed to validate Jesus' identity in the minds of those on the outside, that they might be captivated, they might be drawn towards the light. And Paul says this, he says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. In other words, like, a person's value comes not from what you do, but who you are. Implicit in the message of Christ is that all, all people, regardless of age, gender, or social position, have value because they're made in the image of God. And social structures that place people on a hierarchy are natural, but they're corrosive. One more, Paul says this. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. He says, on the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And you're like, that's dumb. What are you talking about, Jesus? He goes, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You're like, fantastic. Something finally makes sense, right? That's, man, now I'm on board with this whole deal. Yeah, what, what in the world? It's almost like, Paul is saying to these early Christians that your kind response, instead of a vengeful response, your kind response will stir within the person who's offended you feelings of remorse. You, you can't stop the natural and destructive cycle of revenge by seeking to extract revenge. The conflict takes on a life of its own. And so Jesus shows his followers a way to short circuit the conflict. Take the high road. Choose the gracious path. 
and see what happens. And you go, no one does that. And that's Jesus' point. It's a new way to do life. One more verse. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, good drives out evil like light drives out darkness. It's a lot of ideas there. See, so, so these, these first Christians, they, they understood this. Yeah, they understood it. And they did it. They did it really well. I said, they, I would say they did it well. They didn't do it perfectly because they're people. But they did understand their call to countercultural living, and they actually lived differently, and they began to look out for one another, and they began to look out for people who didn't agree with what they believed. And they captured the attention of the most powerful military superpower the world had ever known. And as the way of Jesus spread from Jerusalem, it literally changed the world. Early Christians began to transform their culture by living in a revolutionary way, and and they began to demonstrate in flesh and blood some very, very powerful ideas. Their actions demonstrated what they came to believe. That because of Jesus, and here's just a few of the things that shifted in the ancient world. We can look at that next slide. People started to realize that women are not property. Progressive for 2,000 years ago, right? Culture began to realize that the king can't do whatever he wants. He's, he's not God. He's, a, he's a, a human being. Little boys are not better than little girls. And in fact, even to this day, there are places in the world where people believe that little boys are better than little girls, and Christians adopt the little girls because they say, you have value. You're made in the image of God, and you deserve a chance. In the ancient world, the message began to shift on infanticide or the, or the murder of infants. Christians are saying, no, infanticide is wrong. These are lives. You can't just leave a baby to die. Ignoring the poor is a crime. It's like everything, everything started to change when the message of Jesus began to be embodied by his followers. Human culture began to be redeemed. Friends, I'm absolutely convinced that the secular humanists are wrong. And I call as my witness all of human history. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ has always and still stewards the message of eternal life later and a better life now. Christianity matters. It makes a huge difference. I just one more quote, and then I'm going to listen to a song with you. There's an author named Dinesh D'Souza. He's an apologeticist. He says this in a book called What's So Great About Christianity. He says, what can be said about Christ can be said about Christianity. It matters. It's the very core and center of Western civilization. Many of the best things about our world are the result of Christianity, and some of the worst things are the result of its absence or moving away from it. The church carries the message of a better life now and hope for eternity. As we close the series, um, I wanted to enjoy a song together with you. And so the band's going to come, and the song, the song is called The Church. And it begins with the lyrics, we are the change the world is waiting for. We've got a love the world is desperate for. And, and so as we sort of end our time in the New Testament over the next few weeks, and we look forward to Easter, just, just that thought that the revolution that began 2,000 years ago in a small, insignificant part of the Roman Empire not only change the world, but still has the potential to change the world when you and I follow the example of Jesus. Let's listen to this together.
never change The world is waiting for We've got a love The world is desperate for We will leave And take to your streets Now's the time for us to rise Stand with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the beautiful, disruptive message of the gospel. We thank you for the impact that it has already had in our world, and we are very aware that there is much that still needs to be redeemed. And, and so I pray that you would help us embody the sort of lives that you desire 
for followers of your son. I pray that as we do, the light from our community would shine. Those on the outside would be drawn to the light and the revolution that your son came to initiate would grow ever stronger. We pray that light would push out darkness in our community and in our world. And we thank you for trusting us with this incredible mission. We bless you. We celebrate you. We thank you. We love you. In the name of your son, the name above all names, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you for Easter next weekend.